Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So we continue in our series about the moments in the Christmas story when an angel appeared. The four times that we're going to talk about over these next few weeks. Um, two more weeks before Christmas week is here. Um, and we're going to talk about those four occasions during that time. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but apparently Christmas can be stressful. Anybody know that, right? I heard some clapping. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. Now I'm worried about that. I'm more stressed than I was. So Christmas can be stressful. Um, there was a report in Great Britain about the stress at Christmas time, but not just the stress at Christmas time, but about the fact that calls to emergency services increase at a Christmas time, that it's a dangerous time of year. In fact, they had reports in the last couple of years of 2.6 million people falling off of a stool or ladder while hanging decorations. 3% reported being shocked from badly wired Christmas lighting. The moral of all of that is just don't decorate at all and you don't have to worry about it. Can I get an amen? And I got a boo and a clap. All right. I think you're from the same family, but that's all right. All right. 36% of people in the study said that during Christmas they feel majorly affected or completely overwhelmed by the stress in their lives. We're talking about the most wonderful time of year. Holly jolly Christmas, right? But when you think about all that has to get done, Christmas can be very stressful. There's the shopping. Everybody on the list, even people that you think might bring you a gift that you weren't really sure if you'd buy them a gift, but you'd be afraid if they showed up with a gift at your house, you'd need a gift for them. So you've got it under the tree just in case, people. There's money concerns about the shopping. There's the decorating the house. There's the holiday parties. There's the weight gain from the holiday parties. There's the splitting time between families and how long you're going to spend at their house and how long you'll spend at their house and who's going to be there Christmas morning and where are we going to be Christmas Eve and when are we going to celebrate Christmas with them and how are we going to celebrate Christmas there? There are the Christmas programs at school, at church, Christmas parties at school. There's that moment when you get ready to decorate your tree and you pull out the lights from last year and somehow, while they've been sitting in a perfectly closed box over the course of the year, those lights have turned into a ball of intertwined lights that will not come untangled. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you work on it, no matter how hard you pull, no matter how many lights you break, just hypothetically speaking, they get into problems, right? They're Christmas cards, got to be sent. You got all the people sending you Christmas cards, now you got to send them Christmas cards. There's those famous phrase, that famous phrase, some assembly required. There's travel. There's traffic. Credit card bills that come later. There are the moments that you're around with more serious things when you're remembering those that you've lost, loved ones that you've lost that are no longer with you. It's dark early. It's dreary and cold. And you got this pressure to make a memory out of it. Make it memorable. But here's the thing. Christmas has always been stressful. Even back to the very first Christmas, it's been stressful. Is anybody familiar with what they call the Holmes Ray stress scale? 
Where they take an event in your life and they give a point total to it to determine how stressed out you are. Now, I would give it to you today. Some of you are more stressed out than you realize, and you'd have problems with that, all right? And so the Holmes Race scale has all these kind of things. And so, for instance, if a marriage breaks up, that's 65 points. If you get married, it's 50 points. If you have a pregnancy, it's 40 points. If you have in-law issues, I don't really know what those are, but I've heard about them. I'll let you decide what they are. 29 points. If you change your residence, 20 points. If your sleep habits change, 16. And they tell you that you go in, you add up all the points of things that have happened to you in the last year. And if you hit 300, then you are at risk for illness and you are overly stressed. Now, I don't know how they did it exactly, but somebody went and took the Holmes Ray stress scale for Mary and Joseph. And their score came out to 435. I mean, they were stressed, right? When you think about all that happened, they changed where they lived. They had marriage happening. They had a breakup of their relationship for a a period of time. It wasn't a divorce, but it was contemplated even before they got married. There was a pregnancy involved. It was an unwanted pregnancy. It was not with the support of friends and family. God had set into motion the plan that would rescue humanity. And yet in the middle of it are stuck these two young people. Now, we don't know exactly their ages, but Joseph was probably in his mid to late 20s. And Mary was probably somewhere around 14 years old. And in the midst of that, God is instituting his plan. In fact, one of the things that we don't think about a lot at Christmas, I know they talked about this in youth group on Wednesday night, but the book of Revelation gives us a picture of Christmas that shows that spiritual warfare was at one of its highest levels in history in that moment. In fact, there's a picture in the book of Revelation where the nativity set is happening, where the birth of Christ is happening, and waiting for the baby to be born in order to devour the baby is a dragon. Can you imagine the spiritual warfare that was happening in the life of Mary and Joseph while she was carrying the Son of God? Stressed out. And yet in the midst of that, we see this beautiful story of a young girl who has an encounter with an angel and life is forever changed. Not necessarily from an earthly perspective for the better, But from a heavenly perspective, it would change the world. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, just so you know, that is in the backwoods of nowhere. Okay, Nazareth is is a suburb of a suburb of a town. I was telling my my kids this week, I didn't actually grow up in Dyersburg at the beginning of my life. I grew up just outside of Rowellen, Tennessee. Anybody ever been to Rowellen? That's what I thought, all right? There's no nothing in Rowellen, all right? It's a small little back of the woods, nothing happening kind of place. That's what Nazareth was in Galilee. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. The angel, sensing her fear, says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He goes on to say, he will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary obviously has some questions. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've never had sexual relations with a man? And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. By the way, that is the same phrase that is used in Genesis 1 to describe how the Holy Spirit is enveloping the earth, is hovering over the earth. There is creative essence in the midst of that. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Consider your your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now we're going to stop there for a minute. Because I just want to talk about this scene for a moment. I mentioned she's probably 13, 14, 15 years old. We know almost for assuredly she is not older than 16. She is there waiting in her house. She's normal day. She's in the midst of planning probably her wedding, all that's going on with that. Now, it wouldn't have been like planning a wedding for us today. They wouldn't have been concerned about a 20-minute ceremony and a two-hour reception. Her family would have been concerned about the entire village coming to their house for seven days. It would have been the party of the year in that area because everybody would have known Mary from Nazareth and Joseph from Nazareth and it's they're perfect together and they've arranged this and this is awesome. And she is living her life like everybody else in that town would imagine she would live it. This pure girl, this good girl who was doing what God had called her to do was to live a life as a good Jewish girl in Nazareth, to marry a good man like Joseph, to have a family and just kind of fade off into existence and then her world is completely turned upside down now in the midst of that he uses a phrase that has been misunderstood and miscommunicated and used incorrectly almost since that time because he comes to her and he says you are highly favored or blessed and highly flavor flavored she's not flavored highly favored People hear that word and they use it all the time. Man, I am blessed. They are blessed. We're blessed. And almost every time we use it, we don't meet it in the sense that Mary was blessed. When people use the word blessed, they talk about the fact that they're rich in something. Man, man, you, man, you are blessed. Look at all you've got. Or things are going really well for them right now. That, that life is turning out well. Man, we just, you know, we got a great family. All, all our kids are doing great in school and following the Lord. Man, we're blessed. Or even it gets thrown around in trivial things like you're out at Opry Mills this afternoon and somebody near the front entrance pulls out right when you're driving down that lane and you go, whoo, the Lord opened a parking spot. I am blessed. And somebody sneezes, we say it to them, right? Bless you. Nobody really knows where that came from. There are thoughts that in the Middle Ages, people thought when you sneeze, demons came out of your nose. And maybe for some of you that is true, but... I've seen preschoolers, especially right. Some stuff comes out of there when they sneeze and they were praying that they would not go back in after they had come out. More than likely, it was a medical concern. The plague was happening. People were sneezing. They didn't want to get it themselves. They're blessing the germs as they're coming. It was kind of like the Middle Ages hand sanitizer. We're going to bless it as it comes. 
Well, you just use the word. I'm blessed. They're blessed. We're blessed. Bless you. Now, in the South, we also say things that don't really mean good things. Like, bless his heart. Right? We don't tell people from up north that we don't mean good things when we say it because they think we're just being southern and sweet. But that is not usually a good thing when somebody tells you to bless your heart. Right? So what does it mean? When we think about Mary, when we think about all that's happening here, what's really going on? What does it mean to be blessed? Because when you think about her situation, I want you to think about the fact that we would not have looked at her from the outside and thought, man, she is blessed. Her reputation was ruined. Even to the point that when Jesus was older, this is in other writings, this is not biblical accounts, biblical accounts are true, these are rumors that are out there, these are untrue things, but even when he was an adult, there were rumors out there that he was born as a result of an affair with a Roman soldier. Mary lived with that for over 30 years. It never went away. In this moment, she recognizes that's going to be a problem. What are people going to say in the community? What are they going to do? How are they going to know? What's going to happen? They ask the angel, how is this going to be? She's not really asking, is this possible? What she's saying is, how are you going to make this happen? And the result is, what is this going to do to me? Her reputation is ruined. Her fiancé, she knew, was going to walk away from her. And he did, at least for a time. Her family would shun her. This is not what a good Jewish girl did. In fact, we know that her family shunned her because when we read the stories of nativity, there is absolutely no mention of any other family being there. In your nativity sets, there are only two adults inside where the baby's born. That's Mary and Joseph. The families aren't there. And in their society, the families would have been there. In fact, their families, his at least, were in town because the whole census was going on. So when they couldn't find a room at the inn, that meant even their family wouldn't take them in. They were poor. She was poor to begin with. They got poorer. We know that because when they bring Jesus to dedicate him in the temple, they give the offering that was allowed for people who could not afford the normal offering. And not to mention that she was about to enter into the most dangerous thing a woman could do in that day and time. And that was to give birth to a child without any support from her family. She didn't know all of this starting out. In fact, we get to the end of the story, the end of the kind of the Christmas story. And what do they do? They flee to Egypt. They are refugees on the run because of this announcement. Now, you think about that. If you're looking at her and you're saying to yourself, well, I'm going to tell you what, that Mary, she's lost all respect in the community. She's going to have a child. Her husband, her, her husband-to-be has left her for the time being. Her family has shunned her. She is poor. She doesn't have any chance to support herself. She has been shunned by the religious community because of her actions. Boy, she is blessed. And yet the angel says to her what? Highly favored one. So the question becomes, what made her blessed if all of those circumstances were going to go south? Two things made her blessed in this passage. First of all, God was with her. In chapter 1, verse 46, she starts to sing a song. And this isn't going to be on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open, it is right there just a few verses later. Chapter 1, verse 46, and Mary said, 
My soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on this humble condition of his servant. What he's what she's saying here is he has seen me. He has been with me. He is here with me now. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She says, I am comforted by the fact that in spite of the reality of my circumstances changing in ways that are going to be troublesome and difficult and hard, I am encouraged because God is with me. Biblically, the circumstances of your life do not determine whether you are blessed or not. The car in your driveway does not determine whether you've been blessed or not. The amount of money in your bank account does not determine whether you've been blessed or not. The clothes on your back do not determine whether you've been blessed or not. The circumstances at your workplace do not determine whether you have been blessed or not. The determination on whether you have been blessed, whether you are favored, is whether or not you are in the presence of the Lord. Whether the Lord has saved you and you are living with the Holy Spirit inside of you that his presence makes the difference on whether or not you're blessed. And so the circumstances of your life may change. The outward circumstances of where you are. And you may be in a situation right now where like the thing I feel the furthest from is blessed. And yet if you are a child of God, have been saved through Jesus, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you are blessed. In fact, can I tell you this? That oftentimes in our lives, one of the things that happens is the things that we think are blessings in our lives can become hindrances to us actually finding true blessing through our relationship with Jesus. Because there are things in our lives that we do not realize have taken captive of our souls and taken captive of our imagination, taken captive of our mind. And they are things that we saw them as blessings or see them as blessings because we have them and other people don't. Or we have them and they make our lives easier. But sometimes those things that are blessings in our lives actually lead us away from the Lord and they become idols or hindrances or things that we would be better off without. Mary has everything stripped from her in this moment. She doesn't understand the full ramifications of all that is happening here. She doesn't understand that this life is going to be a life that's going to be harmful. In fact, just a few chapters later, she's going to meet with a guy that's been waiting to see the Messiah. And God says, he's here, Simeon, and he's going to lay his hands on him. He's going to tell Mary in that moment that her heart is going to break over this child. Because it wasn't just that she was going to be an outcast and that she was going to be poor and that her husband and her were going to have to work on their relationship because of this situation. An angel was going to have to literally appear to the man that was supposed to be her husband in order to make sure that relationship stayed together. It wasn't just that her family wasn't around. It wasn't just that the rumors would follow her for years to come. One of the things that she would find out as life went on and was prophesied in that moment when she dedicated her child in the temple is that he was going to break her heart because she was going to watch him die on a cross. There are very few moments in the life of Mary that we have a picture of Jesus where we see her life outwardly blessed because she had this child. And yet she is blessed because the presence of the Lord is with her. And the second thing that we know that says that she is blessed is not only is the presence of the Lord around her, but secondly, because she is in the midst of doing the work that God has called her to do. There's an interesting thing in that song that she writes. By the way, this is the first ever Christmas song. Do y'all know that? Right? She wrote this as she has been told about all that's happening. And so the first ever Christmas song is in Luke chapter 1. She says about this child, Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49. 
Because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. In those few verses, she gives us a picture of the purpose and the plan of God that she gets to be a part of. You see, in those verses, there are three things that God is called. First of all, he is called mighty, then he is called holy, and then he is called merciful. And what we have to understand is it describes the essence of what is about to happen through Jesus in those few words. First of all, God is a holy God. He is other than us. He is supremely perfect. He is perfected in every way imaginable. He is morally pure, righteous beyond any comprehension, and he cannot associate his righteousness with those who are not. That's a problem for us because we are not righteous. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're here today and you're breathing and you're alive, hopefully that's all of you. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned and you are in desperate need of reconciliation with him because he cannot have a relationship with sinful human beings. Scripture also says in in that psalm that she says, not only is he holy, not only is he otherworldly, not only is he other than us, but he is also merciful. And the idea there is that he wants to save. And so we have a problem. We have separated ourselves from God by our own sin. God in his holiness cannot interact with us. But in his desire and his love and his mercy, he looks down and says, I am going to figure out a way. I have a plan in place to save them from their sins, to reconcile our relationship. The only question that it comes, if he is willing and he is loving and he is desiring to do so, is he able? And that first word that she describes God as is that he is mighty. God is almighty, able to do anything he wants to do. And because of that, he is going to send his son through her to save us from our sins. She is in the midst of doing God's work. When you think about the mightiness of God, the glory of God, when you think about how big he is, I was reading this week about the works of his hands, and somebody was comparing um, the size of our galaxy to where we are. So if you take the Milky Way galaxy, y'all know that's the name of the galaxy we're in, right? I know when I say Milky Way, some of you get hungry because you want a candy bar, but the Milky Way galaxy is the galaxy we're in says, if you were to say that the Milky Way galaxy was the size of North America, that our solar system in the Milky Way galaxy would be like a coffee cup placed on a table. And if you took our solar system and said, what does Earth look like in our solar system? Our Earth would be a speck on the inside of that cup. And then if you take us and say, where do we fit in that picture? We would be a speck on the speck inside the coffee cup sitting by itself in North America. And our God spoke and created billions of galaxies at once. When Mary asked, how can this be? I really don't think that's a question of asking whether God is able. I think she knows that. I think the question that she is asking is, God, how are you going to do it? So there's a difference between the way that Mary questioned, and if you were here last week, the way that Zechariah questioned. Remember last week, Zechariah, God came and said, you're going to have, Gabriel came from God and said, you're going to have a baby. And Zechariah looks at him and says, how? I'm old. And my wife is really old, right? 
advanced in age, really old. That was a question of, God, I don't think you can do it. I think this is a more of a question of, God, how are you going to do it? And he says, God has chosen you. You know what I find interesting about this passage of Scripture and lots of passages of Scripture, but I just find it interesting that I just gave you a description of how big and mighty our God is, that God is outside of creation and yet God spoke, and all that we know came into being, including universe that is billions of stars big. And yet when Gabriel comes to this girl that is 14 or 15 years old in the backwoods of Israel, he calls her by name. That speck on a speck in a coffee cup in North America, God knows everything about you. I love Mary's response. It's the end of this, this part of the story. Mary says, after all of that, her world's been turned upside down. Her life will never be the same. She knows that her reputation is ruined. She knows that her family is going to abandon her. She's not sure what Joseph's going to do. And she knows that she's going to have a baby that is going to be very, very special. She says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Whatever the Lord wants to do, let him do. So I think about this story. There are a couple of things that I think about, about what God does when he uses people. And I don't know about you, but my goal in life is to be used by God, to be a part of his plan, to do what he's called us to do, to take the gospel to the nations and across the street, to save people from their sin, and I want to be a part of that. You say, well, how do I be a part of it? There are a few things. First of all, first of all, we realize that God chooses who he uses. Mary didn't go apply for the job. They didn't have open auditions to be the mother of the Son of God. But God looked down in his infinite wisdom and said, that's the girl. I believe that he chose her and he chose Elizabeth and Zachariah as a part of that, but he had set the whole thing in motion. He chose her because of Joseph he was choosing, but he chose her. And that means that you and I don't have a whole lot of say-so in the thing. It's not that there was anything great about Mary. Mary was not a perfected human being. Mary was a flawed, sinful human being. From the moment she was born and at the age of accountability and able to make decisions for herself, she chose to walk away from God in small ways and probably big ways until she died. She was a sinful human being who could only be saved through her own son's death and resurrection. But God singled her out. And what I love about this story is that we would have never read this story if she hadn't have been available to hear from God. And God uses people that are available, ready to be used. People whose schedules are a little clear. They're not pushed to the edges where there is no time to be used by him to do something special. People that are willing to listen to what he's going to tell them. Howard Hendricks, who's a Bible teacher in Texas and um, a guy that tells people how to study the Bible, has said that when it comes to being used by God, that he wants to be fat. Now, the phrase he uses is faithful, available, and teachable. 
That he wants to be faithful to what God's called him to do. That he wants to always be available for God to use him. And that he is willing to listen and obey with whatever God calls him to do. God uses people that are simply available to be used. What would it look like in your life, in your spiritual life, in your scheduled life, in your financial life? What would it look like for you to make yourself available to be used by God? I saw a quote from a sermon I think is actually being preached this weekend from Craig Rochelle, who is um, a pastor in Oklahoma. And he says that the problem that most of us have is that we have no margin in our lives to be used by God. That our stuff has so overrun us, that our schedule has so outscheduled us, that we don't have any available spot to be used by God to bless others or to serve Him. We need to be available. And we need to be teachable. Ready to listen. kind of rolls into the next thing because God uses people not only available, but he uses people who trust him in spite of their doubts. Mary asks questions here, but she's open to an answer. She's willing to have an answer given to her. She's willing to listen. She trusts that God behind the questions is greater than the doubts that she might have. At the end, The angel says to her, nothing is impossible with God. And she believes that. She just is asking for some questions, some clarification about how. God doesn't despise us when we doubt. God doesn't hate us when we doubt. God doesn't mark us off when we doubt. We all, at some point in our lives, have doubts that we deal with, doubts that we struggle with, doubts that we work through. The question in our lives, are we struggling with those, dealing with those, asking those questions with an understanding that we believe God to be true, we believe God to be mighty, we believe God to be for us and that any doubts we have we can work through if we first trust in God to begin with. Look past our doubts to the greatness of God. And that means in our lives that we have to be open to correction by God. We have to be willing to hear an answer from Him and change our direction. I'm afraid that one of the things that scares me about our culture and when it filtrates itself into the church is that we live in a culture that is more and more set on the fact that I am right and you are wrong and I will not even discuss with you the possibility that there might be some middle ground. And so politically, people on the right are right, they think. And nobody... And they're, Everybody else is wrong. Nobody even listen to anybody. People on the left say that they are right. Nobody else can ever be right. So there's no dialogue. There's no discussion. And if any dialogue or discussion happens, suddenly people get all freaked out because they're talking to each other. It infiltrates its way into our lives more than we realize. We're unwilling to hear from the Lord something new, something different. I can guarantee you this. On their day planner back then, 2,000 years ago, Mary and Joseph did not have to have a child before they were married. That would be the king of the world. And then the last thing, and then we're done. God uses surrendered people. There's a small thing here that shows the complete surrender that has to come for Mary. It's one of those things we kind of glaze over because we know the story, most of us. We've read the story. We're just like, yeah, that's great. But there's a part in there where the angel says, you're going to have a baby and you're going to name him this. You ever tried to tell a mama what they're going to name their baby? Like no discussion in the matter. This is who it is. This is the name. Like we've had four kids, all right? 
Each one of those naming processes have been great. We haven't any issues with them, but they were thought provoking personal things for us. Each of our kids have personal names that we chose for them because of the significance and the meaning that is there. When the doctors had told us that we could have no children, none, and we were able to conceive the first time and have Eli, we named him Elijah specifically because it means Yahweh is my God. And we were declaring that God is the one that knows the end and the beginning and that knows what is going on in between. And he alone is able to determine the future of our lives. Yahweh is our God. In each of our kids, we put specific parts of our family's heritage in the name. Ma- uh, Maddie is named after Susan's mom, who passed away not long before we found out Ma- we were going to have Maddie. Susan's mom's name was Marilyn. We named her Madeline. We changed the D, but it's in honor of her. Grace is in there. It's in a family name. But we intend for us to understand that everything we have is by the grace of God. Like they're intentional in our naming. I can't imagine somebody from the outside coming to us and saying, you are going to name your child something else. Mary just says, let it be. My life is about to be changed. Everything's about to be rearranged. Let it be. J.D. Greer said about this passage of Scripture that one of the things we find out in our relationship with the Lord, there are two postures we can take with God. We can be in complete surrender to Him, full surrender to Him, or we are in rebellion. Those are the only two options. So let me ask you a question. When we think about Mary, whose life was completely altered in one moment, and everything happened, and she says, Lord, let it be. Let me ask you a question. What area of your life is off limits to God doing something with it? What area of your life is off limits to God? I've told you the story before. There is this, um, There are these stories from medieval times when they were getting ready to go off to war, that some of the soldiers were going to fight for the cause of Christ, as they saw it in that day, and that they were going to fight under a banner of a Christian flag, and they had not even accepted Jesus, and so they thought they better get baptized before they go. And so they would baptize the soldiers, but the soldiers would oftentimes be baptized holding their sword out of the water saying that I'm not going to baptize the part that's going to kill the others. Now, hopefully, whatever it is in your life isn't like that. But if we're honest with ourselves, what are some areas of your life where you say, God, you can deal with this and you can take care of that and you can challenge me in this, but man, God, I just don't know about that. Is it something to do with your family? Is it something to do with your schedule? Is it something to do with your stuff? Is it something to do with your career? What is it that you say to the Lord? That's off limits. When you identify that, are you willing to completely surrender to him? Are you willing to say, Lord, let it be? Let's pray together.